one of the key things that I talk about that always surprises people, particularly those who I work with who are athletes, which is when I talk about doing away with goal setting, traditional goal setting. Oh my God. I don't believe in traditional goal setting. Put them in the bin. When life inevitably happens and you can't reach the desired output. You think you're a failure. I think you're a failure. Yeah. Hi, my name's Ella McChrystal and this is The New Mind. Today's guest is a great friend of mine called James Elliott. Now, James is a psychotherapist. He's also a resilience coach and he's got a brand new book out called Think Yourself Resilient. So James, hey. welcome. Thank you. So good to have you, my good friend. Yeah, it's, it's been so <laughs> lovely to be. What people don't know is we've actually been, we've basically already done like eight podcasts <laughs> in chatting. We have. Yeah, convincing ourselves we just go for our, we'll just have one quick wee and then we'll get going. <laughs> and four wees later. Four wees later. Four wees and two hours later. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm glad you're here just because I love you so much yeah, yeah. and I love spending time oh, with you. Like, I, I miss you so much when we don't hang out. We, like, it feels like we don't hang out enough. We don't hang out ever. <laughs> yeah, to be fair. I say you're a great friend. <laughs> we never see each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should, we should do more messaging and seeing of each other. We, we should. should do, like, in a social context as well. Yeah, we should. We should. That's dangerous. So the last time I saw you socially was when I... With, with Laura to see Catherine Ryan. And Laura we to my uh, other previous Previous guest. guest. Yes. Bit of plug there for Laura. <laughs> Go, Laura. Go, Laura. <laughs> um, yeah, and we went for food. We did. And we were in there for hours as well. We were. I think they were annoyed with us, the stuff. But I think they were. <laughs> we're too charismatic. <laughs> but I didn't go to um, the theatre with you because I think I was busy. Yeah. Or not invited. <laughs> One of the two. Well, there was a moment where Catherine Ryan said... Um, where's, we, Ella? where's Where's Ella? Where's Ella? As she said, um, any men and Laura, like, because we, they were quite close to the front. It was like four rows back. Uh-oh. And Laura said, James, and like pointed. But <laughs> thankfully, there was a middle-class guy in the front row wearing a body warmer, you know, like a proper gilet. Oh, yes. Oh, and his yeah. name was Guy. And she said, and who's this woman you're with? And he went, oh, this is my wife. And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> She's going to annihilate him now for the rest of the night. You were left alone. But I would never have forgiven Laura. I'm glad she did that. Mm. Because that just tells me all I'm, I need to know I'm about I'm really her. embarrassed. But I was like, no, no, please. <laughs> She's so funny. I, I would never have thought that would be an issue for you. She would, nah, yeah. But I mean, I would have just been absolutely terrorised. It would have yes. been really funny. Yeah. But yeah, I would have been absolutely terrorised. It would have only been good if it was recorded. Yeah. And I could look at it and laugh. At me. Speaking about recordings, you've just been on Channel 4, haven't you? I was on Channel 4, yeah. So I was on Steph's Pat Lunch, which is this lunchtime show. And it was really interesting. Like, so I, I met people in real life, which often happens, but the people who you'd seen on telly. So Simon from Sunday Brunch was there, the bald guy. I know who you mean. Who is just the nicest guy. He is so lovely. Like, I never thought that he wouldn't be. Yeah. But he is just like really lovely. So I'm in there and we had like a little bit of chat back and forth. And I'm obviously, I don't drink at all now, but I said to him, the amount of hungover Sundays I've spent watching you on Sunday yes. brunch and he said I am still annoyed to this day that I've never been sponsored by Neurofen and we had like a laugh and he cooked <laughs> steak and he was yeah he was really nice and when I finished my interview which kind of just went by in a blur he's behind the cameras giving like double thumbs oh, up that's like, lovely yeah he was really nice they were all really nice the guy from JLS was there I think and Anton I want to say and like yeah I yeah don't know I don't yeah I don't know celebrity culture no at all so I didn't actually know who any of the people in that green room were and so I had these chats and then I looked some of them up and I'm like, oh, they've got a couple of million followers. But You've got they, to get used to this, James. No, they were just really lovely people. What do you mean? No. No, it's just, it's. What do you mean? The thing no. is, is, is they're so, 
they're so taken aback when they say like, what do you want? And you're like, what, a world peace or like right now? <laughs> and they go like, no, what, like, are you hungry? And you might be hungry, but I'm like, no. Do you want to drink? Do you say no because you think it's rude to say yes? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Do you want to drink? No. And like, I've got really dry mouth. Do you want to drink? No. <laughs> Maybe some water. From the tap though. Yeah, Nothing yeah. expensive. Yeah, exactly. And they're all there, you know, and they're getting fed. Drinking and champagne. I know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not having any gems? No. No, no yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't need anything. But it's it's just, you know, so it was it was a really amazing experience. When I went in, I started speaking to Steph during the advert break and she had this lovely conversation about her kids and my kids and uh, we had conversation and then we just rolled into it and it yeah it went felt conversational very conversational and you were on there to promote your book yeah my book so I've known for a long time you were writing a book mm. and um, I wrote a book myself mm-hmm. and I didn't get to go on the telly with mine <laughs> <laughs> so I'm a little bit jealous <laughs> but also like woo yeah. I know someone on the telly and I want to know really what inspired you to write your book. I mean, it's called Think Yourself Resilient. You're a resilience coach, but yeah. for people that don't know you, which yeah. I'm sure there's very few that don't know you now, now you're super famous. <laughs> but tell us about what was the the reason behind writing the book and, and a bit about what is in the book. So the original idea for a book was about three years ago mm-hmm. and it started and it was there was just so much about resilience that I was part of the British Army's mental resilience training team for like two years and I was one of the sort of originating people on there and pushing this mental resilience and I realized that it was such a misunderstood subject that people were throwing this term resilience around and I wanted to get all of this information that I not just studied and educated but was informed about as well from my background of sport, my background of military and of course childhood stuff as well. So I wanted to give a far better definition of not just what resilience is, but how we can deliberately develop it. Yes. So I wanted to do that. And I started kind of putting pen to paper and all of this stuff came out. Loads and loads and loads of stuff came out. And lots of it was kind of nonsensical and unusable after a while. A lot of the stuff that I've written by the time I get to the end of that three year point was no longer relevant or I had changed perspective on it slightly, which again shows that it's something that's ever evolving as all sciences do are ever evolving. That's such a good point. Yeah. And that was within the three year period alone. So it wasn't even that long really. Yeah. 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 Studies have shown this. Well then by the end of that three year period, like actually other studies have shown other things. Wow. So you, you go, well, maybe then there's more to this and I, I've written and written and written and, and, and yeah, and got it out. Um, the whole kind of motivation for any of it was, and I, I know this, I take a lot of inspiration from a lot of popular culture, movies and music and art. So I find it so inspiring. It's like Robin Williams says in Dead Poets Society that engineering, doctoring, they're all noble pursuits, but art and music is what give, and love is what give life yes. meaning. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So I love all of that. So, one of the things that I find really motivating is is a clip from a movie and it's a superhero movie and it's where Batman says to the Flash, just save one. The Flash says, I can't do this. I'm not like you. I'm not tough. I'm not a fighter. I'm not a warrior. I, I don't know what I'm doing. And he says, just save one. Go in there, grab one person and see what happens. And because you know, once you save one, you then want to save a second. You yeah. then want to save a third. So when I'm, whether I'm writing this, this book and I was writing the book and getting really overwhelmed, just kept thinking, just save one. Like if that lands in the hands of one person who needs it, you, you've won. 
It was all worth it. It's such a good way to think, actually, because I think if you think too broadly, you'll never do anything. Yeah. I've experienced that in lots of different ways. Mm. And you're never going to be, I mean, I've read your book because you kindly sent me a copy of it. Mm. And it's a great book. And I think for anyone that wants to start somewhere and understand and also have a bit of a story as well, but mm. wants to understand a bit more about how to become more resilient. It's the perfect book, mm. obviously. But if you were to write a book again, because you've got that experience of doing it this time, mm-hmm. you're going to evolve each time oh, also. Yeah. yeah, yeah, massively. So you're you're helping people. And I always say that anything I do is to be the version of me that I needed. Mm. And I think you're a similar kind yeah, of Yeah, I love mindset. that. Yeah, be, be the person you needed when yeah. you were a child. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that ties so much into like, so many of the questions and challenges we see around masculinity these days. Yeah. About what does that mean? And just being the man that you needed. Yeah. You can't really go wrong with that. And what did you need as a child that perhaps you didn't have? Safety. Yeah, it's a big one. Safety. Yeah, safety. Like it wasn't safe, like physically, emotionally safe. It wasn't mm-hmm. a safe environment to be in. And I needed that. And actually then I find myself being drawn towards men who make me feel safe, who allow me to express myself authentically, who tease me for my nuances and quirks, but who (laughs) love me for those nuances and quirks, you know, and that's what I needed. And I encourage that of all people, that safety, be who you need to be. Be authentic. Be authentic, you know. And there's a really beautiful quote by Picasso, which is, the meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give that gift away. I love that. Mm. I've seen that a lot. And every time I see that, it's like, yeah. But I'm really uncomfortable with this. And I don't know how you feel about this. People have often said, before I started the podcast and before I wrote a book, (laughs) oh, what are you going to do next? People are always interested in the next step. Yeah. And I always struggle to articulate that really, because I don't like saying I want to help people because I actually don't. I know I can't help people. Yeah, yeah. I can educate people to a point yeah. and, and perhaps give them enough information mm. to be able to help them help themselves. Yeah. But I, I've never felt comfortable with the idea of helping people. So it's a very difficult thing when you're writing a book or doing an online course or anything like that to be able to really get across to people what the purpose of it is. Because mm. I think if you haven't done that before, you immediately think it was to help people. Yeah. But actually it's bigger than that because... To be the person that you needed mm. and to gift that somehow to mm. others, it won't actually be just as simple as helping. Mm. And I think this is what I love about your book. It's educational. Right. Yeah. And it is that, that is in itself helping. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not necessarily the only. No, no. Of call. No. Um, so I have a, a thing that I'm, I'm, I'm really hot on when it comes to a lot of clients, which is, I say that a person can drown in a paddling pool or a person can drown in an ocean. The size of the body of water is irrelevant. It's the fact that someone is drowning. Now you can jump in and drag that person to safety, but that doesn't create any longevity. What you have to do is teach them how to swim and you can only teach somebody how to swim if you yourself have swam. Yes. To tie into exactly what you're saying there is that the problem is, is sometimes you Somebody doesn't always want to learn how to swim. Yes. They want someone to jump in and save them every time. Yeah. And that's a problem. Yeah, it is. And I think one of the reasons that I'm really interested in you as a guest is that you are a psychotherapist who happens to have a military background Mm. and be into sports and, you know, fighting. 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 Not in the the aggressive sense, but in the well- what is it? What Brazilian Jiu Jitsu? Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I started BJJ at the start of this year, and I've obviously played rugby for most of my 
life, yeah. literally most of my life I've played rugby. Um, less for about eight years, as in from naught to eight after that, been playing rugby. And so, yeah, like I'm seeing a huge crossover in resilience in obviously a military perspective yeah. and as well a sporting perspective. And of course, coming from very difficult childhood background, that childhood perspective as well of what does resilience actually look like? And that's interesting because you said there about, you know, you've got to be able to swim before mm. you can coach someone how to get out of a sticky situation. Right, yeah. If they're in, you know, drowning in a paddling pool or an ocean. But actually you do tick all the boxes in that sense. But also I think your goal isn't just to be out there helping. Your goal is broader than that. So we're talking about education mm. and we talk about the the way that helps people. Mm. But what do you think it is that's so important for you to be able to give somebody past the education, past the help? Because you've got you've got the knowledge which ties into education, but there's obviously something quite unique about you as well because you have this, um, we were talking earlier about the kind of people that you work with. A lot of mm. them are in the bodybuilding world and mm. competitive people. Why do you think that really resonates with you? That's that's your kind of uniqueness, I guess. Yeah, I think I think I understand the struggle. There's a lot of struggle and there's a lot of an internal struggle there that goes on. You know, there's a lot of the high performing athletes that I work with who have these incredibly complex internal battles. It was Muhammad Ali who says, it's not the mountain which ties you up, but it's the stone in your shoe. Mm. And I think I'm very help, very good, very help, helpful with people at removing that stone. Like, what is that stone in your shoe? Like, what what is it that holds you back? Why do you why are you not the athlete that you deserve to be? Yeah. Why are you not there? And that's really interesting. I love that. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I see with so many of my my, my athletes. There's a stone in their shoe. Yeah. And we get to take that stone out, and then that then leaves them free to clamber up that mountain. Mm. And I can't navigate them up the mountain. No. Like I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not a bodybuilding coach. I'm not a, I'm not a, a rugby coach. I'm not a boxing coach. I'm not, you know, I'm not a CEO. That's for them to navigate. I just help them take that stone out of their shoe and off they scamper. Mm. And I think it's that relatability, having competed in high level sport, having understood that. And I think what's really interesting is a lot of that high level sport, and it's not just men, but there are a lot of men that I, who I work with they often talk about their previous experiences with therapists being very different. Yes. I'm really struggling with that because they said they didn't really speak my language. They didn't really understand. And there's a huge divide with how we should be treating men compared to how we should be treating women. Yeah. And the American Psychological Association only has six papers in it that explain the difference in psychological treatments for men and women. And there's like, I always reference this, there's like a hundred, at least a hundred gender differences in the brain right. alone. Right. So if we are not looking at people differently and looking at what right. they, their yeah. needs are, then yeah. we're failing as a therapist. It's very basic of that is women are bought with, born with 20% more connection in their perieal part of their That's brain right. than men. Yeah. So like you and are, we have two verbal centers, females. Men have one. You've so much more communicative. Yeah. Yeah. I think a woman uses on average 20,000 words a day and men uses 7,000 words a day. Yeah. Perhaps we need to stop pushing the narrative that men, it's okay to talk. Correct. I'm so glad you said that. That's why I love the somatic therapies, like the mm. hypnotherapies, the trauma-informed therapies, such as EMDR. Yeah. With EMDR, you don't really need to do much talking. And I know some people have had negative experiences depending on how it's been delivered, but mm. I tend to blend some of mine, mm -hmm. my uh, therapeutic techniques together to mm. make it safer. Mm and a bit more explorative. So a version of EMDR, mm. bilateral stimulation, but men really respond well to those. Yeah. Uh, women do as well, but 
and also they have to warm up. They have to build the relationship. There, have, there has to be, I think women, because they can communicate mm. verbally more easily, uh, generally, they are happy to get into the talking stuff. Men are happy to do that, but mm. they're a lot more structured in what yeah, they say yeah, yeah, and they hold back a little bit more. Yeah. And so the somatic therapy is brilliant for that. And when it comes to athletes, for me personally, I tap into the hypnotherapy aspect probably a little bit more than just the talking with mm. them because that's what they know me for. That's why they're mm. here. Yeah, of course. So we've got a slightly different angle of how we work with them, mm. but similar thing, which is don't try and apply a theory of counselling or psychotherapy to everybody because it just doesn't yeah, work right, like yeah, that. Yeah, every like every individual you meet is the exception to the rule. Yeah. And not every man, want, like they want to feel validated in what they're saying, but they don't want to focus on that. Things yes. like positive statements and positive psychology just doesn't wash with a lot of these guys. Yeah. And and I was at, um, was at something the other, the other week and a woman was talking about, you can't be, um, you can't be anxious and grateful at the same time. So if you focus on things you're grateful for, you won't be anxious about those things, but that doesn't fix the problem. No, it doesn't. So you're right. You can't be, but that doesn't fix what you're anxious about in the first place. And here's the thing with a lot of men, the reason why we say, well, the reason why I've identified, particularly with the very vulnerable veterans that I work with, telling them to tell themselves it's going to be okay and to be grateful. A lot of the time, it's not going to be okay. And in fact, you're going to piss them off by you're saying that. You're going to that. piss them off. Yeah. You're going to piss them off. And what they actually they need to do is to think logically on the next steps that they make. Yeah. Like uh, I see a lot of therapists talk about it is what it is, but I reject it is what it is because yeah. it is what we choose to make it. Also, I hate that. Yeah, I hate it. Yeah. It's it's so narcissistic. It is, yeah. It is what it is, is so narcissistic and it's dangerous. And I ha also hate it's okay not to be okay because you're saying to people, just, just don't be okay then. Yeah. And I know, I know what people are trying to say yeah, is yeah. if you're feeling low, you know, it, sit with it, work with it. But actually the statement almost is, is encouraging people to just stay where they are without mm. actually doing the work. Mm. For me, if I don't feel okay, I'm like, okay, it's not okay to feel like this. Mm. What can I do? What are mm. the logical steps? Yeah, right. I'm not going to force it. If mm. I'm having a bad day and I need to sleep a bit longer, then that's fine. But mm. I'm not going to stay with the, it's okay not to be okay. Mm -hmm. It's overused. And I think it's a good way of getting a few likes on Instagram, putting that out there. And helplessness. Yeah. Yeah. And how often do we see helplessness and trauma go yes. hand in hand? Yeah. And we identify that actually one of the main deciding factors of form of the main deciding factors of trauma is that an individual feels that they are not capable of ensuring yes. their own survival. Yeah. And so how if you're incapable of ensuring your own survival, how long have you sat there saying it is what it is, it yeah. is what it is until until you're no longer capable of surviving. Yeah. So that's dangerous. Yeah. And it's dangerous. It's helpless. It's narcissistic. Yeah. Like stop it with, it is what it is. Yeah. It is what I choose to make it. Yes. And if we consider it is what I choose to make it hand in hand with the amalgamation of marginal gains, if I can improve 50 things by 2%, I'm a hundred percent better off. Yes. So what are those things? Like, wh how am I looking after my health? How am I planning for my bills? What steps am I taking? What am I doing to challenge my perception of my position and therefore my position itself? And sometimes it's as simple as what time am I getting out of bed? What time am I getting out yeah, of bed? Yeah, am I getting out of bed early enough that I'm making mm -hmm. the most of the day? Yeah. You know, what am I eating? Mm. Am I showering enough? Yeah. It's, sometimes it's that basic, but long term it's then increasing that, isn't it? Yeah, and of looking course. at the bigger picture. Yeah. But you're right. And I think this um, therapy space, it's funny in the amount of times I've done a podcast or a Instagram live or mm. just conversation people say and I joke about it sometimes so tell me about your problems yeah you know and that's what yeah. they expect from a therapist you'll then just go okay yep see you next week yeah and that's that's their experience 
And that's genuinely their experience. Yeah. So I think having this conversation is interesting because I, I, I try to tell people, actually therapy has evolved quite a lot. Yeah. And there's a lot more out there in terms of choice. And you don't have to go to therapy just because you're in a terrible, terrible no, place. No, which is what probably the both of us see a lot of. Yeah. When people are hit rock bottom, that's when they call me. Yeah. And I mean, I like that I'm a go-to guy. Yeah. That's, that's a compliment in itself, of really. It is, yeah. But as well, you can just, you could have just told me when your relationship was getting a little bit difficult. Yeah. Not yeah. when she's left and taken the kids. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I had an osteopathy treatment here today mm-hmm. in this beautiful clinic, the Northampton Clinic, where we do Best clinic in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the best clinic in the world. Actually, the oldest in the UK. Oldest in the UK. Absolutely. And best. And best. Um, and so lovely Laura did my osteopathy treatment and I'd been feeling a little bit not quite right in my body for a little while. And mm. I said to her, I really don't know why I keep doing this. You know, I've got to practice what I preach and I do with everything mm. else. But, but if it's not really hurting and I can carry on doing what I'm doing, I tend not to go and get the treatment, Mm. right? And then I was thinking, oh, that's what people do with therapy. If it's not, I'm in such a bad place that I can barely function, Mm. they tend not to get the therapy. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's almost like, and Laura said something like, I'm paraphrasing, but she said something like, yeah, but the thing is you kind of wait to see if it will fix itself. Mm. And when we wait to see if it will fix itself... We just think, well, I don't really know how long how how long that could be. Yeah. So that could be three weeks, four weeks, six yeah. months. So by the time you've realised you've not fixed, yeah. you could be a year into it. Yeah. Well, do you know what's really so? When you were saying that, I was thinking about my own injury at the moment, and I thought, what was it? Three weeks ago, I ran a half marathon carrying forty four pounds of kit in two Mad. hours, two hours and four minutes. Then I do BJJ four or five times a week. I pump iron every day. And then I roll my ankle and then I have to stop. And then I realize I have not been resting my body, my yes. knees and elbows and back click. Yeah. And now that I've been foam rolling and stretching, they've now stopped. I'm in a much better place. Yeah. I'm sleeping better. Yeah. All of a sudden I've gone, I have not been looking after myself. Yes. And the same thing is, is in therapy. Yeah. Things get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until yeah. the bottom falls out. And I actually, I mean, I've had bad experiences with therapists. I had one has referred to me because um, I was a veteran and I said, listen, I'm, I'm at this point and things are really difficult. Da, 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 da. And she referred to me in the first session as her cash cow <gasps> because she said, you can come work with us. Like, cause loads of guys would really like you. You'd really draw them in. You do really well. I really want you to come work with us. You'd be a cash cow. And then the therapy sessions then started lasting 15, 20 minutes and they would be like FaceTimes and she'd have a cigarette in the car FaceTiming. Wow. Right. I am shocked. Right. (laughs) Like a 20 minute therapy session as she smokes in her car. And I'm going, you don't care about me, do you? This is ridiculous. This isn't therapy. No, this is a chat. This is. (laughs) I'm your mate and I'm paying you for the privilege. If anything, you're a bit nosy. (laughs) A bit nosy. (laughs) Really? And then what does she say? (laughs) Mm -hmm. No. No way. Yeah. And you're like, what? Um, yeah. And now, so now we try and generate this different idea about therapy that it is a conversation. And yeah, like you can be friends and intimate and, and open and vulnerable with each other and talk about things and work things out and talk mm. about identity and capability yeah. and have your perspectives and, and help people and, and watch them grow. And I'm so glad beautiful. you've said that. I trained because I'm just like maybe a few days older than you. Mm. <laughs> Very slightly. Mm-hmm. So I trained quite a, a way before you did. Mm-hmm. And 
I remember being told, do not give anything away about yourself. Be a completely blank canvas. And in my head, I'm going, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, but you're not a human being. I know, I? exactly. And I think, you know, I say this a lot. I've got a long waiting list and I've got a lot of people that have been seeing me for a long time. So it's a very American approach, actually, in mm. the sense that I don't do 12 sessions and you're out yeah. because you might not be ready yet. Yeah. So my approach is that you decide. And if you're, if you want to come for hypnotherapy or if you need somewhere to deload, if you want to, you know, think of a different aspect of your life, coaching, whatever, because mm. I do a, a little bit of everything, then you can do that. As long as you know that you don't have to. Mm. And as long as you know that mm -hmm. I don't expect that of you, yeah. that the boundaries are clear, but, but in the same way, I might like to go for a, a massage every month. Someone might come and, you know, just do what they need to do for their mind every month, which mm. is fine by me. But once I sort of realized that I could say, look, I, I get to a point where you're coming from. And I started to say, I've experienced trauma and I've experienced childhood trauma. And there's been lots of different things that I've gone through in my own life. So when you're saying something to me, I'm, I'm not just looking at a textbook and going, oh, I wonder what that means. Mm. I actually have a lived experience. Yeah, right. And I think that made people, especially when they knew what the trauma was, yeah. it made them go, oh, wow, you really do get it. Mm. And, and you must be doing this for the reason that you actually care mm. rather than, I didn't know what to do when I left school. So yeah. I went to uni and did this. Yeah. I actually do think you can have a very, very friendly relationship with your clients mm. and you can develop a closeness. Obviously, that has to be with boundaries. And the other thing I say is my therapy sessions are genuinely filled with laughter. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously me laughing, yeah, yeah. nobody else, <laughs> yeah, yeah. not at them, but I laugh a lot and I, I like to fill the room with fun and it doesn't have to be like, <laughs> yeah. it's, some of that will happen, yeah, yeah. but actually we'll just have a laugh and a general chit chat. Mm. And of course, swearing. Yeah. People, people always say, can I swear? And I'm like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because yeah, yeah. I want to swear too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't swear till you swear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you're free, yeah. I'm free. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm always really aware when I work with someone that how how in, intense the previous session was. Yeah, I don't want them coming to there and just thinking I'm going to bore my eyes out. Yes. It's going to be horrible. And I'm going to be exhausted. Yeah, you just. <laughs> It's fine. It's a process and it's not about terrorizing someone and having them crying their eyes out every session because yeah. that's not productive and then they're just not going to enjoy speaking to me. No, they're not. And and so I did um I did a talk at um Oxford University. Oh, only Oxford. Come on, James. We can do better. <laughs> well <laughs> I was brought in by this um, like really, really brilliant woman who said, um, I'd love you to do a talk about communicating more effectively with vulnerable veterans because it's something that actually we really struggle with here. Mm. And one of the kind of the first things that I spoke about was was about actually how that formal barrier becomes a real obstacle, because we tend, generally speaking, the army recruits from very vulnerable areas, so a very low socioeconomic demographic. Because yeah. poor kids don't make resilient kids; they make very vulnerable kids. Yes. So they meet their basic needs, and in exchange, we live in a dystopian nightmare. <laughs> so um, to put it bluntly, to put it bluntly, we do, we do. <laughs> And it was, it was something that was, um, was picked up on that. Yeah. You know, come in, lie on my couch and here's a, a, a wall full of incredible degrees and doctorates. That oh I've got. yeah. I haven't got a single certificate up myself. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, people are like, well, I'm a bit intimidated by that mm. and understandably. Yeah. And there's a language barrier, of course, because of military terminology yeah. and swearing, you know, in my own therapy journey, I've been in therapy before where they said swearing's a bit uncomfortable and it's group therapy with a group of veterans. And some of those guys, like I love them, can't spring a sentence together without swearing. Can I ask a question though? Because I, I don't understand that from a, being a therapist and a human mm. and someone who swears, I don't understand what they mean by swearing is uncomfortable. Well, I, I, I personally don't, but I think it, 
I think it's very old fashioned. Right. You would have respect in this room. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And particularly like if it's a female, which is interesting because I've actually related far better to female therapists in the past, but female therapists who have had that no nonsense attitude. Yes. Yeah. So people like yourself and a a couple of us who have been like, no, this is what we're going to do. But that might be a bit of a, a, a false economy there because I think 90% of psychological doctorates are handed to women. So yeah. it might not be a gender divider at all. Yeah. Actually, what I might just be picking up on is people who have a no-nonsense attitude attitude, yeah. rather than a, yeah. a, a, a stiff kind of, oh, no, I don't like that yeah. um, mentality. So I find that to be uh, the case. And actually, people tend to communicate far more effectively with that that what well, we call it relaxed professionalism it is relaxed yeah. professionalism yeah like, like i have a story you have a story yes. and there's things that you can say that yeah that i can say you know and, and pick up on and help you with one of the, the the key things that i talk about that always surprises people particularly those who i work with who are athletes which is when i talk about doing away with goal setting traditional goal setting oh my god yeah because i know because it's in the book right and yeah. i talk about i don't believe in traditional goal setting smart principles specific measurable achievable relevant yeah. time bound yeah put them in the bin. Yeah. Put them in the bin. Yeah. Because the problem with, with setting these rigid goals is that when life inevitably happens and you can't reach the desired output. You think you're a failure. You think you're a failure. Yeah. And there's a catastrophic effect on your, on yeah. your mental health, on your yeah. well-being, on your ability to yeah. perform is absolutely destroyed by this, what you feel like monumental failure. It's mm. not a monumental failure. No. Like it, it happens, life happens. Mm-hmm. And when you set really rigid, specific goals, it becomes almost impossible to fight back against them. And if you already feel like you're not enough when yep. you fail, yep. then you're going to just re, you know, reinforce that. Yep. On that note though, because I actually do like smart goals, but this mm. is how I use them. And I said this just the other day, I think on an Instagram video, actually, I say the best thing that you can do, in my opinion, mm. and you can agree or disagree is set the intention Mm-hmm. Once you know what you want something to feel like, look like how you want to look to mm-hmm. other people or what you want to see around you, what does it look like financially? What does it look like? You know, mm-hmm. all of those different, mm-hmm. you know, use the senses. Then you can use the SMART goals as a good template mm-hmm. for how you might bring it together, mm-hmm. but be flexible with it. Mm-hmm. So although it's a very specific template, mm-hmm. so I've done that many, many times. I've sort of gone, is this realistic? Mm-hmm. You know, how can I be more specific? Because if I say, right, I don't know, I want to have six houses. I want to be a bit more specific. What area, you know, where where will I invest that money? Mm-hmm. That, that kind of stuff. But actually be flexible with it because mm-hmm. anything can change at any time. And if you're not going to be flexible with it, you will fail. Mm-hmm. So I think using the template isn't a bad idea in itself, mm-hmm. but having the psychology around it, which is, mm-hmm. it's okay if this needs to change. I think, yeah, I mean, I do agree with that. I think the problem that I have with the smart, smart and with traditional goal setting is that it feels like you're constantly then trying to be motivated to achieve something. Something, yeah, yeah. Whilst if you challenge your identity to fit your desired outcome. Yes. So it's saying, oh, I want to own six houses. Okay, cool. I want to be a millionaire because that's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. You want to be a millionaire because you want to have those six houses. Amazing. Cool. If that's what brings someone subjective fulfillment, I'm not here to judge. Like there's this really negative narrative that it's really selfish and, and terrible to want to make money. Mm. But people can want to make money that can bring genuinely someone fulfillment. Of course, especially if they've never had money. And it's sort of like they they equate that with their level of success. Like I came from nothing Mm -hmm. and now I have this and it shows that I've worked really hard and I've pushed and I've been determined and Mm -hmm. I'm proud of that. Mm -hmm. So then how is their identity representative of that? So then how does a millionaire eat? 
Yeah. How do they sleep? Yeah. How do they spend their time? It's Who the are they intention. with? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like setting, right. That's what I want to achieve. I want those six houses. And I'm going to be really granular about what that looks like. Yeah. And that's where smart can come into that. But that's what I want to be really granular yeah. with what that looks like. Yeah. I'm now going to, I'm now going to challenge my identity to fit that. So I don't need to be motivated to become a millionaire and buy those six houses. No. Because I am that and I am that now. And, and that's interesting, that whole thing of motivation, because I totally agree. And that's why the intention is always more important than the goal. And the sensory elements of that is more mm. important than the goal and being flexible. But I also like the the fact that you've mentioned about motivation, because one of the things that I always say to people is, I never feel motivated yeah. until I've done something and then I want to take the next step. Oh, like, I mean, I, I get so frustrated when I see this. I see so many people Whenever I see someone post something about motivation and discipline. Yeah, I know. It's so frustrating. What you're telling me is you don't understand human behavior. Yeah. Yes. Like when the, there's one rule in a jungle, when the lion's hungry, it eats. You don't understand humans. Yeah. Like that's what, that's all you're telling me. Yeah. When you, ever you're posting anything, it's all about my discipline and yes. my motivation. Shut up. Yeah. Like you don't know what you're talking well, it's about. Ego. Yeah, of course it's it is. Ego. It's exactly what it yeah. is. It's somebody's ego. It's somebody saying look, I've got all of this because something intrinsically brilliant within me. Yeah. So willing to ignore all of the socioeconomic, social psycho factors that have had played a huge role yeah. in it. And one of the biggest things I talk about in the book is there is no such thing as a self-made millionaire. No, you're like, right. We're all in this together yeah. and we're all, my tagline is stronger together. Yeah. Because I am where I am because of my brilliant friendship groups I've got. And people say, yeah, but you made those friends. Yeah, you're right. I did. But they're still my friends who have facilitated my yeah. success. Yeah, it's who you surround yourself with. Like, and and on that note, because I said there, I don't feel motivated. A lot of people probably go, "Yeah, well, I don't actually feel motivated. No. I I know I have to do it, and I know that I have to get up out of bed, mm. and there's a certain amount of things that I have to do to achieve what mm. I want. Um, and I do feel good when I do it. You know, once I've ran for twenty minutes, or lifted a few weights, mm. or turned up at work and had a great day with my clients. I feel great. And that, mm. that is always a little circuited in that it feels good to do it. So I'm going to do it. Mm. But I very rarely get out of bed and go, I am amazing. I'm so motivated. I'm so determined. I'm mm. a wonderful person. Yeah. Look at me. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Other people aren't like me. Yeah. I'm phenomenal. Yeah. I don't do that. I just feel like, oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. How am I going to make it through today? And then obviously I move around, brush my teeth and I feel fine. Yeah. I don't have that natural motivation when yeah. I wake up in the morning. Yeah. I'm not a member of any 5am club. No. Great if you are, but I mm. can't do it and mm. I won't do it. I don't mm. want to do it. Mm -hmm. What's motivation? What's your take on it? Well, I'm definitely not part of the 5am club. I'm not, I'll never be part of that club. <laughs> That's why we're friends. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to have a nice bath first thing in the morning. <laughs> I was, I was, I was in the army. Like I know what it's like to wake up cold, wet and miserable. I don't need to like, <laughs> it's not like some people say, do you want to come do a tough mudder? No. No, absolutely not. Are you all right? Yeah, no, I ran around in the mud as part of my job. And like, I, I was like a crow bag for like a long period of time in my army career. It was a piece of shit. So like, I got to made to run and crawl in mud a lot. So like, no, no, I don't want to go and do a tough mudder. No, I don't. No, I was an admin nightmare on exercise. I don't, I don't want to go and have an ice bath. I've woke up a lot of times in Sunnybridge having, having gotten, got no warm kit because it got wet in the night, like just sitting there freezing. I don't need to have an ice bath. those hours in. Yeah, I've done it. You can have an ice bath every day for the rest of your life for 14 years. Then come and ask me if I want to have an ice bath. All right, get out of my face. Um, you want a burger. That's I, what you want. Yeah, I want to chill. Like I, I need my space in the morning. And what I do now is I wake up and I have a little bit of a stretch and a foam roller because I'm, you know, my body's battered now. And so I bad knees, bad hips. So I do a bit of a foam roller, have a nice cup of coffee, relax, 
So, and that's interesting that you've said that because your body is obviously quite a bit of a machine. Mm, it's falling apart now. Yeah, I was going to say Losing that. MOT. And, and I'm, I'm kind of glad that you brought that up because I think that one of the things that we see on Instagram is obviously beautiful pictures of beautiful people, yeah. men and women. Yeah. They probably don't go... I'm not. I'm not doing all the ice baths and all that tough mudder stuff. I'm actually rolling for quite a significant amount of time. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm a bit broken. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that honesty is really important as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just. I mean, social media is a highlight reel, isn't it? And people yeah. people put on whatever it is that they want to put on and pretend yeah. that they live a life or an existence that yeah. just nobody is. Yeah, I've actually, you know, through previous experience, you know, had a peek behind that curtain and just seen how fabricated. Yeah, it all is. None of what you think is going on is going on no like none of it no it is so unbelievable yeah what is being done and how it's being done it's so incredibly bizarre and manipulative and yeah it is like the amount of outfit change that changes that have to occur at a certain place because people need to believe that they're spending a lot of time there or the amount of different outfits for a particular place, car, restaurant yeah thing yeah everything yeah everything is smoke and mirrors yeah Everything is smoking. People yeah. are not who they are saying that they are. And the problem with that is, is then that they're posting as if they are. Yes. Because they've, they've created a, a business, a function, a, 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 a money. They're making money from this mm. and they will ignore all of the things that they're doing that are incredibly negative. The airbrushing, the outfit change, like the lies, they, they're not actually at these places. They're throwing up in car parks, all of this stuff that's going on. It's funny you say that. One of my clinicians here at the Northampton Clinic, the best clinic in the world, best clinic in the world. <laughs> had said to me uh, just the other day, she'd asked me what I'd been doing and I'd been to Leeds and back in the day and carried on working here. And she was like, wow, you're working so hard. I was like, I know it's a slog. And then she said there was a client that she had who's a well-known coach mm-hmm. who had, slightly before podcasts were a thing, I think, had like spent thousands and thousands and thousands on going to places like New York, mm-hmm. um, the Ritz, having yeah. these professional photographers follow her around yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and get this real, you know, glossy, glamorous look to this coaching life. Yeah. And then she would hire out the Ritz, yeah. um, tell people this is where she was doing her coaching. And so they would come along, she'd have more professional. And because of that, people believed that she must be good. Yeah. What they didn't realise is that, and I'm not saying she's not good, by the way, because she might be, but in order to promote that image, she spent thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds. And other people are going, how does she do it? She's spending. And I said to you earlier, the amount that I'm spending on this podcast yeah, and the yeah. production behind it and the equipment behind it, you have to spend a lot of money to get yeah. to that space. It's yeah. not about, oh, I'm better than you. Yeah. It's about I've worked really, really hard and I've got the financial uh, uh, capability to invest in this. Yeah. It's not because I'm better than anybody. Yeah. It's because I've worked really hard. So what's really interesting is that I fell into that trap where I did an interview with uh, someone from social media who gave this perspective of being like a super amazing coach and having this academy Yeah, and looking absolutely like everything was a professional photo and the whole thing was faked. So my two points first, well, I'll explain what happened with that person. But but firstly, when you are really, really struggling in your life and you're turning on social media yeah. and then there are these people who are saying, it's all about being a lion. It's all about my discipline and yeah. my motivation. And and I've intrinsically got that. So I'm actually a bit superior to you. Yes. And yet you're queuing at a food bank. Yet you're poorly educated. So your job prospects are, are through the floor. You don't have necessarily, uh, uh, um, haven't necessarily attracted a mate, yeah. full stop. Yeah. And so you're in that space and you're going, but then there is something wrong with me. Yes. 
You do but do that. But these people are completely ignoring all of the other factors, which are far more important, which is loads of studies have shown is far more important than motivation and things like basic needs being yeah, met, yeah. psychological safety, physical safety. Yeah. And they're so willing to ignore that because they want people to believe that there's something brilliant and intrinsically fantastic about them that's made them put them in this position. Look at my ego. Look at how great I think I yeah. am. But you're not. Yeah. You're not that great. Yeah. And everything you're talking about is so misleading. Yeah. And the problem is that people are looking at that and it's just compounding their feelings of inferiority yeah. when that person is ignoring, sometimes deliberately ignoring all of the factors that have facilitated their success. Yes. And then secondly, to return to the point about working with that, that social media person who was like really popular, they had this academy and they talked about well-being and how to become a superstar and all this kind of stuff. And then Kind of two minutes into this interview, I realized this person didn't know what they were talking about. Oh my God. In like like any way. And they said, at the end of the day, we're all just skeletons spinning on a rock, falling through space. (gasps) And you're like... Were you just so disappointed? Yeah. (laughs) Why are you here? Yeah. That is so disappointing. Yeah. Because you, you don't know what you're talking about. And that's to push that message to people who are genuinely really struggling with their lives is so unfair and it falls into that oh it is what it is mentality yes. everything is what it is we're just we're just skeletons on a rock falling through space is, but that, but how have you got where you've got oh and it turns out you know her partner's got a lot of money they're very financially set paid for a lot of things sorted out their position and now you're like wow I should have researched this before I invited you on well it's a lesson in that isn't it is that right. don't believe everything you see but I, I think it's so important you know, I joke at the beginning, you, it's not a joke, it's actually true, but you've been on Channel 4, you right. know, you're doing amazing things with your life. But mm. I've known you for a, a long enough now yeah. to know that uh, you work really, really, really hard. You work nonstop. You're mm. either with clients, you've been doing your dissertation. Yeah. You're doing, what you do, what's your master's? My master's in, in war psychiatry from King's. Right. So you've been working really, really hard on that. You've been yeah. working really, really hard on the book. You've yeah. been going to all these interviews and doing the audio for yeah. the book as well. You just don't stop yeah. and you still have time for your friends and you, yeah. you know, you, you do it all. And, and I would like to think that, you know, people would know that people that know me know that about me as well. Mm. I don't have a social life mm. actually, because I'm always working and that's how I've made the money. Mm. And that's how I've been able to invest in myself. Right. It's not because I'm better than anybody else. Mm. And I haven't always been in that position. I had to do mm. a lot of work on myself in order to be able to have the capacity to work hard because yeah. there was a time in my probably early twenties, I was getting sacked from every job. Mm-hmm. I was very, very angry. Mm. I couldn't really um, hold down many relationships yeah. because I was absolutely not very well at all. Mm. Um, I was self-harming. There'd been two suicide attempts. Mm. I was abusing alcohol, you know, waking up in my own sick. Mm. It was a really tough time. So I had to heal. Mm -hmm. And then I was in a place where I could have the mental and emotional capacity to do the work that led me to this place. So it's been, I'm 44. So it's been a very long, 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 long journey. Yeah. And I would hate anyone to look at it and go, how did she do that? She must have just gone this, this and this. And actually there's a lot of financial mm. investment now. And I know your journey is very similar. So I kind of wanted to find out a bit more about you, you were in the military and then, you know, fast forward, you're here. Yeah. We know that you had, well, you've mentioned, re- referenced the fact that you had quite a difficult childhood as well. There yeah. was some abuse involved there. Mm-hmm. So abusive childhood go to the army mm-hmm. and then there's all this space in between. You mentioned mm. that you don't drink alcohol anymore. Yeah. So uh, talk, talk to me a little bit about the story in between. Okay. So 
joining the army, 18 years of age, loved it. Still yeah. hold a huge amount of affection and love for the military. I think the military is an amazing organization and it takes people from platforms that they are incredibly struggling and put them in a place where they would never normally get. Like kids from my my street didn't get skiing holidays, didn't get expeds up mountains, didn't get to go parachuting. Didn't, that wasn't a thing. And now that's a thing that I got to do. Yeah. The army is incredible. And it's an amazing place and it gives you, and we talked earlier on about identity. It's, it's such a powerful thing that it does because it gives you an identity. The young recruit who turns up for basic training, gets through the front gate, they shave your head, they give you a new set of clothes to wear, they teach you how to walk, talk, eat. You're given a number, which yeah. you never forget, 25201522. Like you'll never forget the number yeah. it is that you're given and that's it. You are recruit Elliot, 25201522. And you march and you walk and you eat in a certain way. And you talk about challenging your identity. When you finish basic training, you're not a soldier. You're not really. You've got the identity of one, but yes. you're not really usable. You haven't got any trade training, infantry skills or driver or engineer like you're not usable yet so then you challenge your identity and I absorbed that identity and I loved it and being part of the airborne forces for so long was fantastic and I loved it there are things that I struggled with massively return from Afghanistan I failed SAS selection breakdown of my relationships and struggles with alcohol Mm. Um, and that alcohol was a reflection of all of that plus childhood trauma like I would drink and I would fight and I would go off and I'd get myself in so much trouble and I'd be all over the shop and things went from bad to worse. And one of the key things that when I got this job as a mental resilience coach, so in 2015, it was probably like my lowest point. And into my room walks this guy who I affectionately call my army dad. He's six foot six and no front teeth. And you do what he wants or you do what he wants with a black eye, either way you're doing what he wants. (laughs) And, uh, And he says, I want you to come be strength conditioning coach at Colchester Rugby Club. And I said, I'm in a bad way. I don't really have the capacity for it. A little bit of a kerfuffle later, and I remembered that I did want to go and be a strength <laughs> coach. And um, off we went, and yeah, and I I took over the role of strength conditioning coach at Colchester, which is a national league rugby team. I loved it; it was so good, and I fell in love with coaching and mentoring. I returned to the regiment in a much better place emotionally, and at the same time, the RAF had turned to the army and said, "We don't have enough instructors to man the parachute training school." you have to slow down on parachuting. And the brigade went, the airborne forces went, no, no, we'll we'll pick eight instructors and you will train them and to become parachuting instructors. And I was one of the eight guys. So off we went and formed the first ever tactical parachute instructors platoon. Wow. And it was like, it was so good because they were all like fantastic instructors and like unbelievably good guys. And we formed this parachuting um, instructors platoon and got to teach parachuting which was just amazing. And I realized that the same key psychological skills that were applicable to the athletes at Colchester were the same skills applicable to the young paratroopers at the parachute training school. Is this the first part of your thinking where you're like, oh, I like this. Mm. I like this idea of the skills and the psychology. Yeah, That's your first moment of, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, My very first ever exposure was in 2009 when I did some boxing. And a guy called Ben Cannon came and did this practice called the bubble of success. Imagine yourself in this bubble and you're undefeatable in your bubble. And I thought that was really powerful. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm at the parachute training school, I'm seeing that a lot of the key psychological skills that were so effective as a strength conditioning coach, like the mentoring and the support and the anxiety regulation, the emotional intelligence, the acceptance of that fear and that pressure yeah. was so applicable. And so these young soldiers were then really increasing their performance at the parachute training school. Mm. There were far less injuries. There were far better performances 
because of this. And then I wound up writing to army headquarters and saying, this is what I've been doing. Why are we doing reactive mental health? Why are we waiting until someone is broken? Why are we waiting until somebody isn't able to perform and is struggling with their life before we do anything about it? Why That's we, interesting. Yeah. Why are we not talking about emotional resilience? But here's the thing. I don't think it should be doctors and nurses teaching yes. soldiers. It should be soldiers teaching soldiers about mental resilience. That thought process is really interesting though, because a lot of people, this is what I like about you, James. And I think this is one of the things I was trying to say earlier about, you know, it's not just like a pretty picture with you. And although I have to mention he's been catfished many, many times because he is a pretty picture, but it's not just a pretty picture. The fact is that even then you were like, oh, I I could see a better way of doing this. That's why I think where your key talent is actually, is that you see you could see a better way of doing it and you can create that. You actually make that happen mm. once you've seen it. And that, mm. the reason I say this is because I say to people, the power of visualization, mm. acknowledging those powerful thoughts, mm-hmm. imagining what you could do with that and then seeing that through is mm-hmm. just such an imperative part of success. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you even then were going, I think this could be done better. And you actioned that. Yeah, yeah. And made it happen. Yeah, yeah. And so that was that conversation. I, this is what I think we do wrong. And this is not just what we do wrong, but how we could do it right. Yeah. It's just pointing out that something doesn't work, doesn't help. Yeah. Pointing out how you can fix it and what we can do to do better. That's how we help. And that's how you work with everybody, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's what you were saying about the logic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like what's your, what's your current situation? Like yeah. what's the reality of it? Accept your current situation and who you are. There's a really wonderful, albeit rude phrase that we have in the military, which is you have to learn to piss with the dick that you've got. <laughs> Most people can don't. I do that? <laughs> yeah, but like, but it's a great expression. Like, I mean, it's a bastardized version of uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, "Do what you can with what you have, wherever you are." Yeah, but yeah, most yeah. people don't know where they are. They don't know what they've got, and they yes. don't know what they can do because yeah. they're too busy sitting there saying it is, it is what, what it, it is. is. Yeah, I know. Like, it's not. It is what we choose to make it. Yeah. Like, what have you got that you can use to make your situation better? That's why I like what you're saying about this story because a lot of people say stuff like that, mm. but you can actually say, "Oh, I did that really early on before I even really understood mm. the bigger picture." Mm. I said, "Here's a problem. Here's a solution. Can you let me be part of that?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And that's where it went. And I did army mental resilience training. So uh, you know, I, I, my first exposure then to some sort of academic education that hadn't happened since I fell out of school, you know, was a a diploma in sports psychology, level four, I think it was in sports psychology, which I was like, wow, this is interesting. Yeah. Like there's so many brilliant people have written so many interesting things and now you're reading and learning and, and and you get to see the Dunning-Kruger effect in, in full, in full, in full go. You read one tiny bit and you go, oh, I know so much. And then the more you read, the more you realize you don't know anything. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. And then I'm still somewhere in the valley of despair where I've written a book about resilience. I've been teaching resilience and putting it into therapeutic practice for years. And still I'm like, I really know that I know everything. That's me. And I always say this when people say, gosh, you know so much. And I actually don't. I know I know what I know really well. Mm. And I love to learn more. Mm. And I'm, my brain is very good at connecting dots. Mm. I don't mm. know if yours does yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you can pick up a theory quite quickly mm. and connect the dots. But actually, there is that imposter syndrome thing going M- on. Massive. And I'm constantly like, oh, I don't know why people are paying me for this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
But this is what we spoke about earlier on, isn't it? Apostle syndrome and those anxieties are nothing more than conspiracies we tell about ourselves. Yes, that's so true. Yeah, yeah. you tell yourself, oh, yeah. it's all going to fall apart. Yeah. And they're all going to laugh at you. Yeah. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> again. Throw you, again, they're going to throw <laughs> you in the river. Uh, there's all this evidence to suggest the contrary, but like you become more and more of a conspiracy theorist, yeah. ignoring that yeah. that's just one study yeah. you don't know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Science lies to us. Yeah. Like, and, and then... And then what you think is going to happen. But it keeps happen. you humble. Keeps you humble. And that's really important. So I don't mind that part of me that thinks I don't know anything mm. and thinks like, oh, how, why am I doing this? Like, why are people paying me? Because it, it reminds me just to keep myself yeah. informed, educated, humble, grounded, kind, all mm. of those things. Yeah. The minute you think you know everything is when you've got well, a problem. Well, that's the problem, right? Yeah. Because who are the people who don't get um, imposter syndrome? Yeah. Right, because yeah. there are many people who don't get imposter syndrome, yeah. And we I tend to observe those people come from insane privileges, yes. You know, and again, you know, this ties into what we talked about earlier on. People who don't get imposter syndrome tend to come from quite immense privilege, mm. and privilege isn't about what you've got, it's about what you didn't have to yes. do to get it, yes. And that's what people miss. Well, yeah. I had to work hard, but what an amazing position you found yourself in yeah. to be able to apply so much work ethic to that one thing, yeah, yeah. Whereas we. We, we've both had a very similar background where we, have you been homeless at times? Yeah. Yeah. We've both been homeless. We've both had probably issues with alcohol. We've mm -hmm. both come from abusive families. We've both um, chosen a similar career path. We've both been very hardworking, determined, been quite successful. Mm -hmm. And I think it, you, the, everyone I know that's successful, mm -hmm. you know, they've made their success by being mm -hmm. really hardworking and really determined. They've often had something really, really painful mm. in, in the beginning of their life. Yeah. Those people have used those experiences or had to develop tools to survive those experiences mm -hmm. that little did they know mm. would benefit them later on if mm. they could just apply them yeah. with the logic that's relevant to what they're doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and pain is an unbelievable motivator. Yeah. And there's lots of people who come from in, you know, awful, awful backgrounds who effectively are motivated by the thought that I don't want that to happen to anybody else. Yes. And that's where real power is, right? Yeah. Real power comes from people who refuse to repeat the patterns of behavior that were repeated to them. Yeah. And we see this all the time. Well, it happened to me as a child and it did me no harm. If you can acknowledge that something was harmful and you're willing to repeat that to somebody because it didn't harm you, yeah. I've got some bad news. It harmed you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did all right. No, you yeah, didn't. Yeah. If you're willing to hurt somebody just because you were all right, no, you didn't. Yeah, there's still a lot to uncover there. Yeah, 100%. So a lot of people who are motivated by that simple desire that I don't want anyone else to experience what I've experienced in the way that I've experienced it, that's a superpower. Yeah. There's a really lovely saying, which is trauma cycled in my family until it cycled into me. Yes. I was like, yeah, I love that. Yeah, and that's I, so true. I almost think it's like the millennial generation's responsibility in a way. When we look at intergenerational trauma, you have to bear in mind that our parents were probably raised by parents or, or, or their grandparents who survived the Second World War, yeah. who either fought in or survived. This area of epigenetics is just crazy. I love it so yeah. much. Fascinating, right? Because yeah. stress response is epigenetic. Yeah. And if you think that if we think, if we consider that the guys returned from the Second World War, and if you consider all of like the trauma up and down, not just the, the Second World War, the First, First World, World War, War, the yeah. Spanish flu. Yeah. Like we're talking about mental health issues from COVID-19. Yeah, I know. But like Spanish flu, like the millions of yeah. people who were wiped out, like wiped out over there. Yeah. A hugely deadly disease. Yeah. And so we've got this absolute 
slaughtering of our, of that generation. Yeah. And then they come home and then how do they express that trauma? Yeah. Like look at like the institutionalized alcoholism yeah. that's in this country. Look yeah. at, look at how we, oh, you know, that stiff upper lip. I mean, it was an unbelievable election campaign by Winston Churchill to say that the British people was stiff upper lip, but we don't show emotion. Like we get on with it, that true British grit. Yeah. That really did huge damage to how we perceive mental health. Yes. And so those parents raised the next generation and imagine Imagine, like what we understand now about veteran mental health, imagine how many, how many millions of households were absolutely traumatized, yeah, I were mean, beating kids left, yeah, right and center. Yeah, yeah. And that is only ever going to be projected onto the next generation. Yes, yeah. Until we start to be more aware and, right. and, and bring those conversations, which is what we're doing. Right. And, and hopefully, like you say, the millennials, I can't even say that word, mm. oh dear, <laughs> uh, will carry on for us. Yeah, right. Yeah. The millennial generation. So kids born between... 2000. And yeah, and it's 1980s, isn't it? So yeah. it's, that, it's that amazing window there where we're going, we're actually really aware of how the human brain works. Now. Yes. Like neuroscience is taking huge leap forwards. We understand that things are going on that we can change. Yeah. But we have to choose to change them. And all of a sudden, bang, mental yeah. health has leapt to the forefront for many reasons. But, but mainly like we're trying to break this intergenerational trauma that is passed from one person to the next person to the next person. And here we are with great grandparents who were fought in the most horrific circumstances who passed that trauma, passed that trauma. And we don't like to admit that because we like to see grand- grandparents and great grandparents as this beautiful, loving, caring. There's a shame attached to it. And shame right. is so damaging because if we're not willing to admit that things were done wrong, mm-hmm. we're also not willing to admit that things need to change. Oh yeah, I mean, that's such a great point, yeah. Uh, yeah, and the, the part of us that holds on to uh, the idealistic, nostalgic views is the part of us that's going to continue to do that. So we have to address that and and not be ashamed. And people didn't know what they didn't know. We said this about science. You mm. can't know what you don't know. Yeah, yeah. You can predict and you can, you know, have a rough idea. But mm. back then, I don't think people, like you say, neuroscience has come leaps and bounds and we know that we have to do things differently because mm-hmm. there's been a lot of pain for a lot of people. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and so now we're in this generation in this space whereby we do understand the brain and we are trying to challenge things and we are trying to change things and we are trying to make sense of the world. And it's, you know, incredible that people are turning around and saying, I'm not going to project that onto my kids. Yes, it's really important. And it's just, I think uh, what, what, what I feel from a personal point of view is I don't know how you can. I could never abuse my own child. Mm. I don't know how you can. I don't really understand that, but I don't know if that's me or if that's a generational thing or if it's cultural. Yeah. I guess that that the culture around violence towards kids has changed. Yeah. It was normal to hit kids. But I wonder, and this is a really important point, and I've spoken to a lot of people that have uh, been sexual offenders or are mm. sexual offenders that that do de- definitely feel guilt mm. for what they've done. Mm. So uh, although they are, you know, carrying on that trauma, they do feel guilty yeah, about it. Yeah. So th- it's a double wound then because yeah. they've experienced the trauma. Now they've yeah. dished that trauma out and now yeah. they're carrying shame, guilt and all sorts of other things. Yeah. In, um, in Dr. Julia Shaw's book, Making Evil, she points out, and it's something shocking, like 96% of paedophiles were sexually abused as children. Yes, yeah, so, and, and, and I talk about this a lot because I, I did some mm. case studies around this based on IFS psychotherapy, internal family systems, yeah. which is Richard Schwartz, great work. I love IFS. But anyway, um, it, it was the, the case that between the ages of 12 and 15, these they were all men, they'd been abused. 
And it was a very important time in their lives in terms of testosterone and puberty. Mm. And one of the most damaging times to be abused mm. or sexually assaulted because it takes away that sense of power, mm-hmm. masculinity, or whatever it is it was for those personally. And so what they do is they adopt the part unconsciously of the aggressor so that they never have to feel that lack of power and that mm. lack of safety again. Mm. So actually it's a very unconscious process and mm. it is a lot to do with the hormones and a lot to do with not talking about it mm. and a lot to do with shame. So it's a very complex situation and we can't just say, and it annoys me having been sexually abused actually and having understood why I was sexually abused mm. from the person who sexually abused me, you know, my dad, and looking at him and trying to understand his motives and why he did what he did. Mm. It annoys me when people just say, string them up. But what about rehabilitation? Well, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Um, because it's really difficult. We have to understand why crime is committed yeah. to help prevent against crime yeah. being committed. Yeah. Like you, you have to understand why something like the Nazi party happened yeah. so that we could prevent against yes. it again. Yeah. Like we have to understand what's going on yeah. so that we can stop it from happening ever again. You have to understand crime. And it's a really difficult conversation for a lot of people to have yeah. because a lot of people don't like admitting that they're only four or five bad choices away from being in prison yeah. themselves. Yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And not just like sexual violence. No, but, but for anyone, you have to understand criminality. Yeah. The vast majority of the time, the question isn't why did that person commit that crime? The question actually is why did they feel that they had to? Yes. That's a very important point. And, and how much of that is driven by, again, trying to protect themselves? Because these are protector parts. Mm-hmm. You know, the crime them- itself is hard for people to understand. But when you understand that they're in protector part mode, mm-hmm. That's very, very complex, like you say, mm. and we would never have the time to fully go into it now, but it's a very interesting point that um, these protector parts will always, the brain's job is to keep you safe. Mm. So even when we're doing something that's very bad mm. and that's, you know, a criminal act, actually the brain thinks to some degree that it's keeping you safe and it's protecting you from something. Oh yeah, we're in um uh, quotes necessarium est lictus, what is necessary is legal, is, yeah. is, is a valid legal defense. Like if you're stealing food because you have to eat because you're starving, is that still a criminal act? Well, you've broken the law, but is it a criminal act? Yes. Like what is moral is not always legal and what is legal is not always moral. And sometimes people will do behaviors, violent crime. Like I, I worked with Scottish police, so I ran the resilience coaching for Scottish police with 23,000 officers. And I said, if you arrest a man for violent crime, particularly if you're arresting him in front of his children, yeah. particularly if they're boys, you should take a good look at those boys because what's the chances you're going to see them again? Yeah. And I've yet to meet an officer who disagreed with that. Yeah. Yeah, chances are I will see them again. Why? Because we repeat the patterns of behavior that we experience as child, yeah. as children, because we believe that is safety yes. and that is security. Yeah. And that's what we believe. Yeah. On that note, I mean, obviously you had a very different uh, childhood to how you mm. are now as a parent yourself. Mm. Everything you've said there is very true, but you and I Mm -hmm. did not continue. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there was moments for both of us because part of your story is, you know, going into the military. Mm -hmm. Uh, We spoke a bit about how you became the resilience coach, Mm -hmm. but there were um, moments in there that were very difficult for you. So you had Mm -hmm. your own mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. You became a parent during that time. Mm -hmm. And you were a very, very different parent to how you were parented. Yeah, yeah. So on on that note about repeating behaviours, what what was different about you? What, how have you been able to break that cycle? I think it's I think it's really, really important to acknowledge the fact that again, there isn't necessarily something intrinsically brilliant about a person who says, like, it is a brilliant thing to do. Yeah. But I had some really, really fantastic 
exposures to what positive parenting is from dads who really love their kids, who would bring their kids into work and the kids could get to sit on laps and and coloring pictures and get popped on someone's shoulder as they went off to the armory and played and and had these like fantastic examples set and just going, I don't, that's what I want for my daughter. I want her to have this life where she is so loved and so adored. And I don't, I don't want to repeat that. And I know, I knew I knew that I wasn't well. Like yeah. I knew that I wasn't well and I knew why I wasn't well. Yeah. And I, thought, I don't want to do that to her. I have these amazing examples around me. I'm in a different environment and I'm refused to be that person. And one of the hardest things is, isn't just admitting to your own negative behavioral pattern. It's acknowledging the fact that you're seeing someone else's negative behavioral pattern in yours. And I'm going, I've become my biological dad at times. Yeah, I have a drink and I'm becoming that. Yeah. I need to stop. I need to change. Yeah. And that's incredibly hard. And things got a lot worse from that point yeah. before they got better. Yes. Would it be fair to say there was a lot of rage in you? Yeah. 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 I mean, I was angry. Yeah. I was angry because I'd never gone through the therapeutic process of understanding why a thing happened. I inevitably did the very human thing of internalizing yes. it. Yes. Like I deserve that abuse because I'm not lovable. Yeah. I deserve that abuse because I'm not likable because I am those things. He says, I am stupid. I am ugly. I am worthless. And because I went through that and I internalized all those things, I believed that. I Mm. believed that about myself. So I was angry at the world. I was angry at people. As you go through the therapeutic process and you understand that actually that's a reflection of him, not of you. Yeah. People see you where they're from, not where you are at. Right. Correct. Yeah. And actually, what was his experience as a child? What do you know about his childhood? What do you know about his parents? Yes. Well, so I know he was like really crazily insecure. Yeah. And his mum was like an absolute tyrant to him at times and make him feel a certain way. And actually, that was then just reflected in his behavior. Mm-hmm. This needs to like dominate people all the time and to dominate other people and to make other people feel shit is because actually that's how his mum made him feel and he was so insecure yeah. about it. So you could understand it's what we were saying before. Yeah. All of a sudden it's not about me, it's about him. Yeah. And actually one of the things I think people find it really difficult to talk about family abuse Mm. because it's a really uncomfortable subject, particularly if it's sexual or violent or whatever. And I say to people all the time, the reason I talk about it is because it happens a lot. Mm. And also because one of the biggest things that you can do for yourself, people talk about forgiveness all the time, but I always turn forgiveness and say, yeah, I would use that word, but I want to explain that. And that's to say, I understood why he did what he did. Mm. I understood that wasn't my fault. And that freed me from the the sort of self-blame, the shame and everything else. Yeah. You don't need to forgive. You need to understand. And if we can do that as a society, then we change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that is just so true. Like Mm. one of the biggest things that we lack in this world is compassion. Yeah. Like every single human being you meet will justify their behavior, no matter what it is, they will justify their behavior. You can understand what their justification for that behavior is. You can re-educate and support them. Yes. Yeah. Rather than judge them. Yeah. And that, you know, ties into that motivation piece. Yeah. Oh, well, if you're not doing what I do, if you're not as disciplined and as brilliant as I am, well, that's on you. You're weak and you're lazy. And that's purely ego. And that comes from insecurity. hundred oh, percent. The reason security. that they're doing that. Yeah. Um, Yes, they're making money off it or trying to, but they're actually hugely insecure as well. We need to understand that. And we need to be able to say, okay, that's that's clearly something that I see and you might see as Mm -hmm. psychotherapists or people in that realm um, that is an insecurity. But what we we can do about it is we can say to other people, Mm -hmm. look, that's an insecurity. They need to do the work. Mm -hmm. You don't need to believe that stuff because it's not true. On a kind of uh, final note, really, a couple of things I want to cover is one thing that stands out about you to me and one mm. thing that I know about myself, which I think has actually saved me mm. from 
people often say, what is it that, you know, is different about you? You could have ended up in a psychiatric unit or you, you know, you ended up where you are. And there's all these different ways that I could have been after the early childhood traumas. And for most people, you, they talk about sink or swim, right? Mm. And I think one of the things was the survival mechanism kicks in, but also I'm a very curious person. Mm. And the curiosity in me enables me to want to learn more about people, things, whatever unless it's technology, in which case I have no care <laughs> yeah. at all. But uh, when it comes to people, I think you're quite curious as well. I think you've got a very curious and creative brain. Mm. Would you say that is part of what you think has saved you from being you know, somewhere else in a darker place? Yeah, 100%. And I say that um, I also have to pre-warn anybody who ever gets close to me is that I'm creative, but I'm chaotic. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that... <laughs> Text creative, me the day before. <laughs> yeah, all creative people are. Yeah, correct. Just yeah. so you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think that curiosity to, to learn, to understand. And I think that like within education, it's so important. Like education is the key. Like and that it, was my next question. Yeah. The education piece. Unbelievable. I agree with you wholeheartedly. That's what I spend my life trying to do. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned earlier about, you know, you did your uh, sports psychology, first sort of proper education that you'd had since school. The school system it, for me, and, mm. and I'm not blaming teachers, by the way, because I think teachers are awesome, but the school system, the, the, the background, the mm. government side of it is broken. Uh, what was your education like? Yeah. So like as, as, a, as a creative but chaotic boy sitting in a classroom for eight hours a day, it's just not, that's, no. that's not going to achieve the desired outcome. I don't enjoy that form of education. No, no, I, now I very much enjoy being at university and doing my master's. That's but you've chosen to do that. Chosen to do that in a subject that I find fascinating. Yeah. But like, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I'm like, where do we, how do children learn? Yeah. We, we mainly learn from role model behavior. Yes, we do. And that we absorb the world around us and, yeah. and we project that. So if right, sitting in a classroom, staring at a board, that's not, that's not compatible for boys who tend to be quite disagreeable and lack conscientiousness at that age. At that age. And, and it is broken. And I work with a lot of young people that are, are you know, sort of school age that mm-hmm. are not learning. They don't want to learn. But the reason I point that out, James, is because if, if you're a parent mm. of a young boy or girl that's struggling at school right now and you're concerned about, oh my gosh, what there's, you know, what's going to be out there for them that they're just, they're never going to get their GCSEs or they're never, mm. all you have to do is look at people like you, James. Uh, well, you, you yeah. know, and that's why I'm saying it is that the education system is outdated and it's a bit broken, but actually someone like you who didn't really have the support or, or mm. the, the positive experience at school in terms of learning, you, you're here writing books, mm. doing a master's mm. in, in psychiatry of... War psychiatry. War, yeah, okay. And you're, I can't even say that, so that's how clever you are. Um, you're also on the telly. You're going to be doing lots of amazing things moving forward. You're helping people, well, mm. you're educating people, sorry. You're out there doing all these phenomenal things, talking here, there, and ever, Scottish police. Mm. Didn't you do something with the Lib Dems? Lib Dems. Mm. I mean, you know, you're doing it yeah, all. And yeah. so it's to really focus on on the identity of that of that person and cultivating that within your children yeah. and allowing them to express themselves and yeah. listening to them and hearing them and seeing them and supporting them, showing the empathy. It's not just about the classroom, is it? No, it's not. It's 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 everything that you do. You know, and there's so many fantastic quotes about this up. Um, Marcus Aurelius, I'm not necessarily a big um, Aurelius fan, but um, stop arguing about what a good man could be and become one. Yeah. I've seen that before and I'm glad you reminded me of that one because I love that so much. Or or Batman, 
it's not who we are underneath, but what we do that defines us. Or Jane Austen, it's not in what you do, but rather what you choose not to do that reveals your character. Have you got a chip in your head? No. Because <laughs> you remember so many quotes. Yeah. I'm impressed. Um, yeah, I, 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 I read and listen to lots of brilliant podcasts, like the Eleanor Crystal podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, you know, everything, everything I need to know about an individual is represented in the patterns of their behavior. Yeah. People say, oh, I don't trust words, I trust actions, but I don't trust actions because anyone could do the right thing once or twice or when people are looking to do the right yes, thing. Yes, that's so true. It's in the patterns that people set. Yeah. Trust in patterns that yeah, people set. That's so true. And obviously that we we studied that ourselves, didn't we, in our, in our training, the mm. patterns of what people do. And mm-hmm. it's so true mm-hmm. that you can see a really good side of someone for six months and then realize that they're a murderer. Yeah. And maybe there's a good reason that they're a murderer, by the way, but yeah, they yeah. still didn't disclose that. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a really lovely thing, which is there's only one thing, there's one part of human behavior that you cannot fake, which is spontaneity. Yeah, 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 yeah. put yeah. a person on the spot and you see who they truly are. Yeah. But part of the problem is, is we don't like to admit who that person is. Once they've been upset, tired, miserable, moody, and they have revealed to us who they truly are, we don't like to admit that that's who they truly are. No. We like to look at the version of them that was smiling and happy and sexy and funny yeah. because that's what's easy to do. Yeah. The hard thing is to admit who a person truly is when they can't apply their own filter to their behavior. And, and actually, that's why I would say that I am quite honest about the fact that there are times mm. when I'm still, you know, not triggered as such, but if I'm tired, mm-hmm. hungry, mm. hungry is a big one. Mm. And if I'm kind of stressed out and, and I'm frustrated, you're going to see a, a side to me that you don't normally see. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. I'm not going to pretend it's not there. Mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to think that I'm perfect because that really sets me up to fail. Mm-hmm. I don't want any pet pedestal. Yeah. I, I am sometimes very human and it's very ugly and I'm okay with that because I kind of want you to be able to be that too. Mm-hmm. And I don't want anyone to feel ashamed about, about those natural human responses. Mm-hmm. If you're just reactive and abusive, that's different. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I choose to not react to things, but I do need time to process. Yeah. And like, like I need that time to and process. And if you're pushed, yeah. you're going to become reactive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I need to that's think normal. About, yeah. Like I can't, I'm not, I don't, you know, react. And and I know if something mm. is said or done, I need a moment to, Yeah. What, how do I want to handle this? Yeah. How do I really feel about this? Once I've removed the emotion, yeah. once I've calmed down, what do I actually feel about this situation? Mm. Okay, cool. Right. That's interesting because I would say that I have to work really hard not to be reactive, really hard. It's still the thing that I guess the Achilles heel. Really? I see. Yeah. I, I'm not, I, yeah, I, I need time to process to think about things. Yeah. And it's not a reflection of, you know, I'm sort of dragging an argument out or a situation. Yeah. I just, you okay, just need that. I need to think. Yeah. Because I, how I feel about it now is not necessarily how I'm going to feel about it in 20 minutes' yeah. time. I admire that. And I do do that. I do as best as I can not react. But there are things, talking about schools, you know, I've got a teenage daughter, she's 16 soon, and the school is uh, not great at managing. They don't seem to care about, you know, emotional health mm. and well-being and education. Mm. Although they say they do, they actually don't. Mm. And as a psychotherapist, looking at all these kids and a few of them come here from that school, mm. I I struggle with that. And it's hard not to be reactive because I feel so strongly about the damage that they're potentially doing, especially to some of the children that don't have a safe home environment. Mm. They go into a school and I've heard it with my own ears where they're being spoken to in a really dreadful way. Mm. It's not discipline, Mm. it's bullying. And that's when I I have to really go, 
Ella, please don't talk. Don't do not mm. do not talk right now because you will end up in jail. Yeah, yeah. So like <laughs> Georgie Paul's at school, you know, she has a altercation with another child. Yeah. And I see the child's parents in the playground. I'm like, I'll tell you now. <laughs> you wanna have a word with your little brat. <laughs> yeah. My my child has never done anything wrong. Ever. <laughs> ever. Your child is stupid and <laughs> ugly compared to mine. My child's a goddess. A de- she's a demigod. What do you actually do instead of saying that? Um, I I just say you know let, you know I think only once has it ever been an altercation where and then we said listen oh, and they're like oh kids will be kids yeah 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 for sure you know I hope everyone's all right and there's no 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 yeah. So the side of you that comes out is the psychotherapist. <laughs> uh, just the temptation is there to just drag some people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad that you're like me and we are both still a little bit unhinged. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be like really weird and quite exciting to be able to say to someone, let's go have a chat about this behind the bike sheds. I've not done that in a long time. I dread to think about what happened behind the bike sheds, James. <laughs> well, yeah. That's a whole different that's, podcast. That's, that's a different podcast. That's the one that goes out very, very late that's, that's and no one ever l- listens to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, listen, I am so grateful that you're here. Thanks for having me. And I'm so appreciative of you sharing all of your weird uh, uh, photographic memory stuff. Mm. It's not weird. It's amazing. Thank you. But it is uh, weird as well. <laughs> yeah. I am weird. You are a nerd. Yes, correct. <laughs> but thank you so much. Yeah. And where can people find you and where can people find your book? So my book is on Amazon. So Think Yourself Resilient is available on Amazon. There it is. So here it is. Carry on. Perfect. That's Think Yourself Resilient by me, James Elliott. Uh, I recorded the Audible as well, which is was lush recording the audible wow. so i did the audible for it and yeah it's available at amazon on audible um my social media i'm on instagram as james elliott official and i'm on linkedin as james elliott can i ask a question just very mm-hmm. very quickly before you say goodbye okay it's james elliott official for a reason isn't it because of the whole catfish thing please yeah. just share this story just very very briefly okay before we go. so uh it started years ago and a woman rang me up and said, I want my money back. And well, she, she messaged me, sorry, on Instagram saying, I want my money back. I said, I'm so sorry. I think you have the wrong person. And this conversation escalated and she turns out she'd given someone pretending to be me thousands of pounds, which I was mortified by. Fast forward, I think maybe four years after that, and I'm doing an interview for Channel 4 yeah. and for the Daily Star and the Sun about it's now the most catfish used profile in the UK. Yeah. And these women are giving thousands of these people who basically that what they do is they pretend to be me. They yeah. use pictures of me and my daughter, but like quite old pictures of me and her like yeah. when I was in uniform to say, help, I'm trapped in Iraq or Kuwait or, or Afghanistan or wherever, the Middle East. And I need a ticket home. The British Army have left me here and my daughter, please come back. And then they, they load on top of that loads of romance, like, mm. oh, you're so pretty. I've reached up to you because you have such beautiful eyes and you're so kind. And these women who tend to be of a certain age and quite lonely, mm. then do wind up giving them the money, the money for a plane ticket home. Crazy. And then the moment that money lands in that bank account, they delete their social media presence. They block and delete that woman. And then that woman's left like, I've just given thousands of pounds to someone. And then they, they do what they probably should have done at the start, which is reverse Google search or yes. look through. And then they find me and they say, where's my money? And then they have to have this really awkward conversation and say, I'm really sorry, but that's not me. 
It's awful. Yeah, and so it's been traced, and, and um, the vast majority, about ninety, about ninety-five percent of them, it's actually a, an organised gang in Nigeria that's doing it. Yeah, and then there is about a five percent which are just people chances. Yeah, or people just pretending to be me, like as in like just I, I, I use the term normal people, but like I will be like on a dating site. Oh, don't you live in? Do you live in Northampton? But no, I live in Colchester. Oh, but you're on plenty of fish in Northampton. Yeah. That's not actually me. Yeah. And I know this to be true because I think a lot of people hear these stories and go, yeah, whatever. That's just a story you've made up. But actually loads of those fake profiles followed me and messaged yeah. me. And I remember knowing you early on going, yeah. James, someone that's pretending to be you. And you're like, yeah, it happens all the time. I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. And then we were out for coffee here yeah. in Northampton, funnily enough. And we were chatting away and you're like, oh my God. And someone had actually gone onto your professional body and mm-hmm. made a complaint about the fake James Elliot yeah. thinking it was you. Yeah. So this is really destructive to you. Yeah, yeah, it, it can, can be. be really damaging. Yeah, yeah, it can be. Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll comment things. So if I do a post about mental health on LinkedIn or and, and they'll comment underneath like, this man's a liar and he stole £5,000 from me. Which is so damaging to your, yeah. to your Credi- professional. Yeah, it's yeah. my credibility. And I'm like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. And then, you know, th- th- some of the messages I get because, you know, they're feeling that rejection. Yeah. Are so filled with anger and are so filled with with rage, you know, how dare you reject, how dare you do this to me? And I, you know, I have to say, I'm really sorry. It's not me. It's not me. There, there was, there is a really helpful page, um, scam haters run by this really lovely woman, Ruth. And I often find myself just directing them to Ruth. Yeah. Because she has great. all the evidence and she can say, this is how they do it. And yeah. this is what's happening. Thank God for Ruth. Yeah. Yeah. God bless that woman. Yeah. Um, uh, a really good friend of mine. In fact, you follow as well, Rebecca Mason. Yes. Yeah, love so Rebecca. She, yeah. So she does, she, she's actually like charged some of these guys who've used my profiles. Yeah. Like she's actually had them in court. Wow. Yeah, is that she, how you know her? Uh, yeah. She approached me and said, we see all this romance scam stuff. Maybe we have a conversation. And it was actually at a point where I was quite desperate with it. And I said, I don't want to have to like delete my social media because that's how my business runs. Yeah. And she said, like, this is my advice. Da, da, da. What's her handle? Because she's also on the Hunted on Channel 4, isn't she, Rebecca? Yeah. Uh, it's at the Mason, it's isn't it? It's at the Mason, yeah. 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 She's worth a follow. She's a lovely girl, isn't she? Oh, yeah, she's brilliant. Like, she's like super smart. So, yeah. like, she speaks to me all the time about these romance scammers. Yeah, she does. She brings, she does her best to bring them to justice. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's the education piece, right? Yes, right? it is. You don't yeah. let someone in your house. If someone turned up your house and went, I'm an electrician. You went, what? No, but like in the 80s and 90s, that was a problem. And you used yeah. to come in and rob. So, it, this is just That's an ex- why it's that age group that are targeted because they're more susceptible to believing it. Right. But I I wanted to bring it up because it's an interesting part of you, which, you know, I know you don't talk about a lot, but actually, because I know when I was with you, it was someone, you know, going to your professional page. Yeah, yeah. I kind of want to say it. So it's literally out there. Yeah, yeah. This is not who you This will be a piece of content that I now use. Yeah, yeah. So can I use that and pin that on my profile and say, you know, I I can guarantee if I look in my request folder now on, on, on Instagram, I will have people saying, I love you. I'm in love with you. Is it just me? <laughs> They're all Ellen McChrystal <laughs> various places. But there'll be, um, yeah. And like, it's like, it's some of the stuff you get sent really unsettling. They'll like take a picture of me and like get a picture of them, something like in a wedding dress and like Photoshop the two pictures together and be like, I love you forever. And you get sent that and you're like, <laughs> do you have to look behind your shoulder every time you leave your house? <laughs> I, know, I know, I sleep with a crossbow now. <laughs> Talk about resilience. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, stuff like that is, it's so popular and it's so, it's, I mean, it's, 
It's a reflection of how poorly we treat the elderly in this yeah, country. It is, really. Yeah, it really and, is. And I don't in any way blame the individual. No. Like the reality situation is that they're lonely. Yeah. They are not an idiot or stupid. And I, there was a, another guy who I know who was um, involved in a romance game. Someone used his details. And in his interview, he called them stupid. He said, they're stupid. How could you fall for that? And I think they're not stupid at all, mate. They're vulnerable. Yeah, that's totally different. Yeah, they're vulnerable people. They're incredibly lonely. And loneliness is a disease. Yeah, it is, And yeah. it's incredibly lonely people who are like, their body is so riddled with cortisol. They're so stressed from their loneliness. They're just desperate for some kind of human interaction. Next thing you know, they've got someone in, in their late 20s, early 30s telling them they're beautiful. They just need yeah. some money. Can they yeah. help them? They're going to marry them and make their life better. And they'll go... I will do anything to stop feeling how I feel yeah. right now. That's not stupidity, that's vulnerability. Oh my God, this is why I love you. I really do. That's why you've got so many different facets to you and anything we talk about, it all comes out. And I just, just, I really do. Well, I, I, I mean, I love you loads and we have like such a great relationship and you, thank you so much for everything that you do all the time. Oh. You're like, if I've got a problem, if I'm stuck on something, I know who to text. Ah, oh, I did think you were going to go into vanilla ice then. If I've got a problem, <laughs> she'll solve it. <laughs> but yeah, like you are my, you are my, you are my go-to love guru. Although for some reason you don't like encourage and enable my behaviours. You seem to like tell me. <laughs> Stop doing this. <laughs> James, just to give context to this, and I'm just going to tiny, tiny bit before I ruin you on air. Mm, throw um, me under the bus. <laughs> James dates very incredibly beautiful women, don't you? Mm. And sometimes I have to remind James of how phenomenal he is. I'm just going to leave it there. Thank you. Just to remind you how phenomenal you are. Mm. You are the most catfished person in the UK mm. for a reason, because no. you're beautiful, no. but you're also beautiful on the inside. No, you see, when this is where it falls down, I need a beautiful woman to validate me. I'm doing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> What's your problem? Yeah. Just voice note me every morning. I call myself beautiful, everybody. Okay. I do that. James didn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> right, I will wrap it up there because it's you. getting very personal now. Mm. It's a beautiful thing. I love you lots. Love you lots. And thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me on. Show. Thank you. Bless you. <laughs>